The following episode of Fofop is rated MA. It contains alternating hosts, a rotating roster of guests, and mild coarse language. Fofop advises that it is not suitable for anyone under the age of 15, or anyone who came here looking for one of those highbrow NPR-type podcasts. Minors must be accompanied by a parent or guardian. This is John Deek speaking. Hello and welcome to Fofop. I'm Charlie Clawson and my guest this week, he's a writer, he's a producer, he's a director, he's an actor, he's a former entertainment journalist and he's the <laughs> author of the memoir 12 Summers, Adam Zwart. Welcome back to Fofop. Thank you. Oh, cheeky little plug there. You can't you can't see this if you are listening, but Adam is holding up the book to the camera. Um, my copy was a Kindle version, so I wanted to post something about it, but I'm like, does it look lame if I hold up my Kindle with the the black and white Twelve Summers cover? It's no. not the same as like, you know. No, it's uh. But look how big the print is. Amanda's always saying, "Well, the print's big, but it's kind of fine for me because uh, I'm blind." Big print's better. Like I all my I do all my reading on a Kindle now, um, mainly because I like to read at night in bed, and that doesn't work with Gem. She doesn't want me with the side light on. And I don't want to be on the couch and then coming to bed. I like to be in bed comfortable and, and reading myself to sleep. So the Kindle seems to have been a good compromise. Yeah, it's yeah. a low light. I can read that in bed. Um, but I have to make that font so goddamn big. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's virtually it's, – it's four, it's four letters per page, four words per page. <laughs> <laughs> oh, mate, you said something funny yesterday. I, I can't remember. It was uh, uh, you bought three books. And and then Charlie Pickering, you, were, you oh, yeah. posted to Charlie Pickering and said three books, no knowledge or something, and you went three books, three dollars. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I yeah, I went to an op shop yesterday and I found uh, I love co- collecting old um, books on the paranormal. It reminds me of when I was a kid. I'd go to the library on a Friday night and I'd get books on ghosts and UFOs and stuff. And so whenever I'm at an op shop and I I see a book in the paranormal, I like to buy it. So I, I posted my recent find, which is uh, three books in the paranormal. And Charlie Pickering, being Charlie Pickering, was like, three books, zero answers, which I responded, that's right, yeah, yes. three books, three bucks. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, the, that's the main thing. Oh, look, mate. I mean, we, we talked about this before. Now, you have reminded me this is a, pod, this is a comedy podcast, um, but I, <laughs> um, we're talking about my dad passing away. And I have... This part of the whole processing thing, I, I think that if you're an atheist or you're a believer, that's maybe grief's a little easier for you because you have certainty. When you're kind of, you just don't know what's happening and you're kind of floating in this little bit religious, little bit agnostic, you don't know what's going on, um, that's when it's a little bit confusing. So I have been going on reading a lot of kind of peer-reviewed physics papers about the afterlife and electrons and <laughs> what it's all about and, and it's just like you know I, no one's i'm none the wiser but it was just a processing thing. yeah and uh yeah so i that's my little paranormal kind of <laughs> my little dip into the uh the occult when Gemma lost a friend she uh bought this book called the journey of souls which is i think it's like a, a compilation of interviews with people who have had near-death experiences and all of them describing you know the that sort of cliche of the the bright white light and the feeling of kind of letting go and stuff and you know i would so i i don't know why i do this but i, I love the paranormal as a concept i don't believe it i'm definitely a skeptic but i i do love the kind of you know the I guess the mystery and the and the theatre of it. I you know raised Catholic as well. You know I was taught about the paranormal from a from yes. a very from a very early age. Yes, but Jem was the one who kind of was like. I mean, because Catholics. Oh, they, I just think the Catholics have a great sense of the dramatic. Yes. Well, I I always say to people, I think Catholicism was my introduction to show business. Like that was the first time I saw you know, costumes and, <laughs> you know, someone performing to a, to a crowd. Dress-ups. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's so true. I mean, you've got the incense and you've got all sorts of kind of stuff, confession. There's just so many kind of little pockets of drama in the Catholic Church. Um, and, like, what I find, I don't know whether it's because of the, the – 
uh, Irish and Italian heritage of, of, of the church. Um, the Catholics are very, they're quite happy to tell you what they think, <laughs> whereas Protestants, or particularly Anglicans, don't tell you what they think. Um, like, <laughs> you could be in a family of, of Church of England and at no stage do you actually raise your voice. It's all <laughs> passive aggression. It's uh, it's all kind of everything's done for it with with extreme nuance. <laughs> yeah. I, I, so when I first started hanging out, because I went to a non-denominational school, but when I started hanging out with Catholics for the first time, I was going, "Oh wow, this is really interesting. How frank they are. They they just tell each other stuff. It's, they don't like something, they they say it. It's, it's weird." <laughs> well, it's it's that weird. I think it depends on what. If you're like, I think being Irish Catholic is is very different to being sort of like a, a, if you're a South American or Italian. I think Irish Catholics tend to be. It's I've always thought they're much more similar um, in, in sort of culturally to kind of um, uh, Jewish people because there is that sort of sense of like guilt and you know Definitely. put upon and you know really good sense of humor, great storytellers. But there is this sort of mm. I've always found like you know uh, mm. coming from an Irish Catholic family, whenever I've met. Um, Jewish people that though and who have had a similar experience, maybe non-practicing now or less, you know, attached to the to their to their religion. It's a very similar um, mindset. Yeah, I agree, hundred percent agree with that. I mean, because Jew, like you know, I've got a Jewish side of my family, and they'll have very happily tell you what they think. Yeah, if they don't like what you're doing or saying, they, there's no there's no hiding behind any kind of niceties. Whereas C of E, all niceties. Yeah. <laughs> hey, uh, let's talk about 12 Summers because uh, it took me a long time uh, to read it. I'm sorry. I, I kept texting you like, with uh, chapter updates, <laughs> telling you where I was at. I don't know. Maybe I wanted to. <laughs> no, uh, mate, I, just, I just wanted to reassure you that I, in fact, was reading it because uh, we had a discussion about getting you back on the show to talk about it. But uh, I just loved it. I just thought it was such a, a great book. It's uh, for people you, who haven't read 12 Summers. It's essentially a memoir, but told in parallel with Adam's uh, love of the Australian cricket team or Australian cricket. And it was, you reactivated something in my brain that I hadn't thought of in such a long time, which was when I was like young, say before I was a teenager, I was obsessed with cricket too, because all of a sudden you start naming all these players and matches that had been dormant in my mind that like I started to remember. And I can't remember where it happened, but I think it was around about, I'd say, the mid-90s when Australia started getting good that my interest in Australian cricket started to wane, which is a ridiculous thing. But, you know, yeah, as yeah. a kid growing up, my two loves were uh, cricket and football and I barracked for the Saints and I followed the Australian cricket team and both were terrible at that time. And it was funny because, you know, you're talking about that Catholic <laughs> guilt. In my mind... That just seemed to um, affirm my station in life, you know, that I was someone who followed a, a teams that were unsuccessful. Mm. And, 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 you know, as a Catholic, you're very, you're very humble and you never expect, you know, never expect too much to happen. I remember my mother very clearly giving me a lesson one morning about disappointment where she said, um, you should never you should never wish for something that you want because you might be disappointed. It's much better to set your sights a bit lower and that way if you don't get it, you won't get let down. Wow. Wow. <laughs> that is, that's very Irish Catholic. Very Irish Catholic. But what I, what I think your, your book does really well is um, marry those. Like I got such a, a sense of who young Adams was and you do really hit upon, oh, you know, good. through every every chap every chapter of the book as you develop into an adult, you know, and the cricket team also changes and develops this strange narrative that we are able to create, an attachment we're able to create with this really arbitrary group of players that you know we have no influence over, <laughs> but somehow their triumphs reflect us, and their and their losses reflect ours. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it, it's essentially, if you look at the, that era, and the era you describe actually was um, 80s and 90s where you, you had a test team and the one-day team, and they were very similar. You didn't, it wasn't kind of the trend in those days to select different teams for, for ODI, for white ball cricket versus red ball cricket. Um, so now you have uh, your Australian team, you have 
the Australian 50 over team, you have the Australian T20 team, you then have your, your BBL team or your IPL team. Um, and so uh, it's very disparate and you kind of got a lot of names coming at you and a lot of people doing great things in different arenas. In those days, you're essentially following 11 to 13 guys right. for about five or six years. Yeah. You know, so you were up on everything that would happen to them as the soap opera of the Australian cricket team. And and uh, so I would say that is the thing that actually is, is quite unique, you know, because in football you're following 18 or or actually, no, you're, you're probably following, say, how many players play in a season? Maybe 30? Yeah. You know, it's a lot of – it's a lot of – for your team, for your club, um, 30 might get a run. Yeah. Um. Could be more. I don't know. And, and let's be honest, um, like a lot, so, a lot of those people are extras in that thirty. Like there are players that you know play for yeah, your team, yeah. but you don't really know anything about them. You have you haven't created any kind of narrative in no, your head. No, no, that's right. <laughs> Whereas you created narratives in your head for all of the Australian cricket team. I mean, it was, and there, there was another thing that was going on. There was the coaching wasn't so formula formulaic, so you had very strange batting and bowling styles, very idiosyncratic, you know. Um, and, uh, you know, you had Kepler Vessel's stance at the crease, which was just plain weird. You had Max Walker bowling off the wrong foot. You had um, uh, Carl Rackerman, who just had – there was a lot of smoke and mirrors as he's coming to the crease. There was a lot of kind of, you know, stuff that was kind of meant to induce fear in the batsman, and then he just kind of – well, you know, at a nice clip, but not not hugely fast by today's standards. So, but anyway, it was kind of you you, you hooked into these different kind of styles of uh, of cricketers, and um, and I, you, you miss a little bit of that idiosyncrasy, idiosyncrasy these days. Yeah, and I think for for me, a lot of it was just based around one or two things. Like I loved AB mainly because in my mind he looked like Robin Hood. Like he had that kind of, you know, he that mustache sort of gave him that kind of dashing matinee idol kind of look and yeah. the way he played cricket, you know, and he was Mr. Yeah. Reliable. And then like a, a name in the book that came up that I'd forgotten about was, like, was Mike Valletta. And I remember there was one summer where yeah. like he, 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 was, he was on classic catches like, you know, all the time. And I just was like, I want to be Mike Valletta. Mm. I just want to be like that slips you know, he just like takes amazing catches, and it, it's it, it's really interesting, like how um, not to jump too far ahead, but towards the the end of the book, when you you let the Australian team go, and you talk about how you know you got to a point where you were older than most of the players, and you sort of just disengage from that. Yeah, but yeah. I just I just find all that so fascinating. I had Titus um, uh, O'Reilly on, on on the show last year, and he he talked about when people dismiss sport as being meaningless, you know, or lacking in depth, you know, it doesn't have the kind of like depth of art or anything like that. And he's like, but it's all meaningless. Like life is meaningless. <laughs> you know, we just, we just choose things to imbue with meaning. Yeah. Yeah. It, that, it It's an interesting thing. If you've ever read, you, you would have read Moneyball, wouldn't you? Yes. Um, the Michael Lewis book about, uh, yeah, yeah. It, it's um sorry it's Michael Lucas or Lo- Michael Lewis or John Lewis anyway Not sure. um yeah so it's it's all about baseball and the stats and everything and and uh look it would be very there's an elitism about art because we can say that we're both in the arts and we we love our sport so there's an uh, there is the conversation at, at a high level around cricket or baseball or football uh, is no less intellectual uh, than the conversation around art, mm. or that it's 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 all about storytelling and the narrative and 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 the actual the way the narrative unfolds. That's in both in both instances. I think I think as humans essentially are, are storytellers, and mm. we lock into we're either observers of the story or we're we, we're the ones telling the story, and um and we just choose our medium. Uh, you know, I find that you know you could write uh, a thousand words on Ian Thorpe swimming the swimming the two hundred meters. Um, that w- would be just as meaningful as 
say a, a Van Gogh painting. <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll put that out there, Charlie. I'll say that. <laughs> I get, but is, do you think that there is? I understand that in the uh, the writing about sport or the observing of sport that people create art, but what about like the actual sport itself? Because I see the way certain players play. And to me, there is beauty, like in the athleticism. Like it's not that I need to then interpret that into art. That in itself of is course. art. Would you yeah, agree? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, 100%. I, I, I totally believe it's art. I, that's what I was saying about Thorpe. I think what Thorpe did was art, you know, and I also think what what uh, is at the National Gallery is art. <laughs> um, so so I, I, yeah. you could say I'm easier to please, um, but I at, at the end of the day, I think it's, it's – uh, all storytelling and how elegantly you tell that tell that story, and yet there there is uh, there is moves on in in football and soccer that is that are just as kind of compelling as ballet, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, well, it's like I think of that first time uh, you know I saw Michael Jordan in that slam dunk contest where he jumped from the top of the key <laughs> and basically flew through the air and. To me, that was as mind-blowing as seeing Michael Jackson do the moonwalk for the first time. Yeah. Like part of your brain goes, I don't understand what I'm seeing. <laughs> like, <how is> <laughs> I mean, we live in the era of like social media now where every day you can, you know, you jump on Instagram and you'll see someone doing something extraordinary, something that you didn't think was, was human before. But, you know, if the era we grew up in, <laughs> we were only getting snippets of these things. Like to see moments like yeah. that. It is transcendent, you know, and I think that, you know, yes. that is, that is, I, I, I don't profess to be like a mad about every single sport, but I, even with sports I don't follow, I can see a, a highlight or something like that and just be like, well, that's amazing. Like, cause it, yeah, yeah, what yeah, it does yeah. is it, 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 it makes you, it makes you want to strive to be better. It makes you acutely aware of your own shortcomings as a human yeah. being, your own like. Oh, definitely you, does. That's how, you open, that's how you open your book is realising that you were never going to play for Australia. And I had, I had my awakening at a much later point in my life involving <laughs> uh, mutual friends of ours playing basketball with uh, Brett Tucker and Hank. And um, after the game, I don't know what prompted this discussion, but Hank out of nowhere just said, "Oh yeah, you're not a natu- you're not a natural athlete," and I'm like, "What?" <laughs> this is complete Fucking news up. to me, by the way. Who had who had grown up playing sport my entire life? I was aware that I was not like an elite, but I didn't think I was. I mean, when someone says you are not a natural athlete, to me that's like going really far in the other direction. That's not just saying, "Oh well, you are not as good as some." It's like you should not even attempt athletic endeavors <laughs> because they do naturally <laughs> to you. How do you think? How do you think you? How do you think you would have gone as a professional athlete? Like, just say, you know, you could have gone into your chosen sport as a professional cricketer. Like, just say, uh, like someone waves a magic wand and you have the the coordination and the reflexes to be a fantastic batsman. Do you think your temperament so would have suited the world of professional sport? No, no, I'm way too emotional. Um, especially <laughs> there are heaps spe- of emotional especially athletes. Cr- yeah, you do. Yeah, I mean, with cricket though, um, uh, maybe I could have been a bowler, um, but I don't have the temperament right. to be a batter. Uh, it's just that that steeliness, that patience, um, just not being thrown, never getting too up, never getting too down. I mean, that's the, that's the, the, the what, what you need to be. You almost need to be a fighter pilot. Uh, and you need to be so disciplined. Mm. You know, if you look at certain plays, like, you know, you look at Steve Waugh, he put away the hook. Um, you know, so that's that's a big that's a big thing. You know, you're going, okay, I have scored a lot of runs there in the past in my life, but I have got out too many times. Okay, goodbye to that. That'd be like saying goodbye to a – that'd be like killing a friendship, a really good friendship, or saying to a family mm. member, I'm not speaking to you again. That's that's where that that's where that – comes from but no i would have got a rush of blood and gone for the hook again you know i just wouldn't have been able to put it away (laughs) um so yeah i i I think my temperament i like i think that uh you know screenwriting is good for me because i live in drama all the time in my head and um Mm. and that's probably you know 
that's probably the best place for it, as opposed to out in, out in the community, Charlie. Um, if I can get it all out, if I can get it all out on the page, then everyone's happy and safer. Um, look, I think the the also I do wonder um, how I would have fitted in. Um, I'm a little bit weirder than those guys, uh, you know. Yeah, I, it's hard to. It's hard, I mean, the eccentricities that they talk about are very mild eccentricities. You know, it's like ah, <laughs> oh, Colin, you know, Colin Miller dyed his hair blue once. It's like, well, yeah, I mean, he's still a corporate dude. He works in. He's now in event management. I mean, he he's not he's not creating weird sitcoms. Um, so yeah, that that's where I think I would have fallen down. What about you? Do you reckon you would have been okay? I just am not good with pain. Like I remember That's a good point. years ago seeing an article on, um, I think it was like when Nick Revolt was first drafted to the Saints and they had a full-length photo of him like in a pullout in the age or something and listed next to his body was all the injuries he'd had to that point as a 18-year-old draftee and it was like knee reconstruction, broken his nose four times. Like I see that happen on the football field all the time where a player – you know, dislocates their finger and puts it back in. Mate, I would need like two months off and I would tell everyone about it. It would be I would be dining out on that dislocated finger for months, if not years. And I just that's the one thing that I really look at athletes. Like I don't it happens all the time in a game of football where players will get like a, a corky or knee knock or something, you know, that would put me out for ages and they just shake it off. Like the the way and it's actually it's it's almost like a part of the gamesmanship is to hide when you're injured, you know, like, oh, yeah, you've done something. You can't let my opponent see it, so I'm just going to disguise it. You know, I've ripped my hamstring off the bone, but I'm going to stay on as long as I can to contest this next ball. Forget about it. Like, yeah, probably I'm too emotional, but I'm also a a massive sook. (laughs) Yeah, look, if you look at the um, the cricketers too, it's like, you know, if you look at – there was a great uh, test. um, I can't remember uh, what year, but it was – uh, South Africa, Australia was in Cape Town, and Mono, a South African pacer by the name of Mono Morkel was bowling just thunderbolts at Michael Clark, and Clark was letting them hit hit his body, and not showing any pain. Uh, I mean, <laughs> and it also gives a false impression. So this is a really interesting situation because a lot of people say cricket wasn't a dangerous game because you have all these superhumans not showing any pain when they're getting hit. All right, so there was. And so this kind of false advertisement was going out into the world about cricket being, yeah, you know, cricket's fine. You know, it's not football. Um, so then when Phil Hughes died, uh, when he was hit in the neck by a rising delivery and uh, went to hospital and died, suddenly everyone went, oh, cricket is a dangerous game. It's fucking dangerous. That ball is going at 90 miles an hour or, you know, 150 150- kilometers an hour and and if it hits you it's you know it it is agony it is absolutely agonizing and you know you you're always putting your hands in jeopardy you're always putting your you know your your body in jeopardy so you're dead right i couldn't have coped with the pain for a second and also i couldn't have coped with the emotional pain of looking on twitter and seeing all these people just like teeing off at me and saying how shit i am but you did face down like Bretley. Like that to me is the most extraordinary chapter in the book is I, I kept waiting for you to say, and they cancelled the shoot or I got out of it. But I was so I, – I was sweaty-palmed reading about that, you facing an over from Brett Lee, not wearing any protective gear to show how Don, what Don Bradman had to endure in the 30s. Was that the idea? Yeah, so we wore these like – you know, so in the, in the 30s they had these kind of – everything was kind of uh, – decorative essentially it was just like oh you know these little gloves that had little spikes on them that was meant to protect you and you had had pads which were essentially just some wood over some material um and you had the box um no helmet no thigh pad um i mean they did makeshift stuff in those days but it wasn't kind of what it is now uh yeah so i used all that went out there with my with my baggy, they gave me a baggy green. <laughs> um, and Brett Lee had a hangover that day because he'd been uh, fishing for five days on a on a boat in Vanuatu and they, he flew straight from Port Vila into 
Brisbane and uh, to do this, you know, to do this documentary. It was actually the final, the finale of the documentary. And we've been waiting. I, I, I think it had been months in the planning getting him. And they couldn't tell me. I wasn't allowed to know who who the bowler was who was going to kind of, I'd have to face um, to finish the documentary. And I remember thinking if it was Mitchell John, like they had to get someone who bowled as fast as Larwood. And we we worked out in this kind of Mythbusters way that Larwood, um, because it was wasn't the obviously there wasn't the speedometers there are now, uh, so we worked out using three D imaging imaging that Larwood is bowling about at one forty seven, and you got to understand he's five foot seven and he's bowling one forty seven. He had these huge, wow. he had very long arms, and um, <laughs> like so a gorilla. He, he to, like a gorilla, yeah. <laughs> and so we needed someone who who bowl that fast, and there was. Only a few, like when you think about it in those days, like Gillespie was kind of fading. Uh, McGrath never really got over 130 anymore. Uh, Sean Tate uh, was was going well, but I think he might have been injured. I was a little bit worried if it was a, a lefty, like it was Mitchell Johnson, because then I wouldn't have been able to get out of the way because you're kind of a bit cramped as a right-hander yeah. facing a left-hander. So, um uh, and then, of course, you know, I thought because that we're in Brisbane that they might get Andy Bickle. And from a distance, Brett Lee does look a little bit like Andy Andy Bickle. So I'm kind of hoping, <laughs> as I saw this blonde-haired person with glasses coming out of the car, I thought, maybe it's Andy Bickle? Maybe. You know, that's like I, I've saved myself at least seven kilometres an hour if it's Andy Bickle. But no, it's Brett Lee. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, so I was – now, I think I've, I've – you know, so if – a cricketer, a professional cricketer, is seeing the ball come out of Brett Lee's hand. They're seeing it come out of his hand. They're knowing they, they know exactly how he's holding the ball and which direction the ball will go in. And then things get a little bit more complicated with reverse swing and everything. But that's what a cricketer can do. Person, just normal human being, sees the ball way later. Doesn't see it come out of the hand. <laughs> Maybe if you're really good halfway up the pitch, but I was seeing it probably about six or seven meters, five to seven meters away from my, before, and that's when I had to make my decision which direction to go. And um, yeah, 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 I, I was like, um, so I know what I'm like when I'm absolutely, absolutely in a state of panic. I, I, my, I, everything slows down for me. It's like I'm watching everything in slow motion, and that's how it felt. The only thing I can compare it to is. When I went skydiving, I took Jem oh, wow. for her thirtieth. I think I, I, bought, I bought us tickets to both go skydiving, and the whole <laughs> flight up was like fine. I didn't, I wasn't worried at all. I'm not scared of heights or anything like that. And we got to ten thousand, fourteen thousand, whatever the jumping altitude is. And so you strapped to your instructor, and Jem was uh, in front of me. And so they opened the door on the plane, and all of a sudden the wind rushes in. You can hear it, and you look down, and it's like you are. Like it's you're 14,000 feet off the ground. And I see Jem go first and they just drop like a stone, like out of sight. And that's when the slow motion cold dread washed over me. And the guy starts like, so you're sitting on your bum on the bottom of the plane and he starts like like a dog wiping its bum, edging me towards the door. <laughs> <laughs> and in my head, I'm like, how do I get out of this? Like how, what is going to, what's going to be, how can I? get out of this and keep my dignity intact. Like, is there <laughs> some way I can I can game this where I get the guy on, on my side and he gets the pilot to the plane down and I can somehow say to Jim, yeah, yeah, I know you went out the plane and I decided to fly back down. But in the end, we just went. But it was just like, that's the most fear I've ever felt. I think I would have been more terrified facing Brett Lee because yeah. at least I had an, an expert strapped to my back. Like, if you were strapped to the front of, I don't know, like Ricky Ponting, <laughs> you know, maybe it wouldn't have been as intimidating. Well, that's right. Yeah, I mean, Phil Hughes died, I think, the year later. Um, and uh, that we, we wouldn't have got insurance to do it, to do that stunt. Um, did you think no, at any point, did you think at any point they were going to cancel, that they, they weren't going to go through with it? They did. Look, I knew, and I say this in the book, I knew that Hamish and Andy would have done it and that's why <laughs> that's why I, I did it. It's like I just had this feeling that, you know, well, that's the kind of thing they would do. What are you going to do? Just like guts out of it, you know, yeah. um, be a big wuss. Uh, there was a lot of conversations. Hey, you don't need to do it. But remember, this was um, 20, I don't know, 12, 13. I, I can't remember now, but it, it, things weren't as uh, careful. 
Um, yeah, isn't that funny? Then it was just ago. on the edge of everything kind of changing and people kind of taking care of the head. Remember? No one gave a shit about the head. <laughs> you know, so, did, so did you did you did you attempt to play any shots or were you just like evading? No, I made a decision. So um there was I, I had a lot of coaching and it was decided based on my skill level <laughs> that I should just get the fuck out of the way. <laughs> Look, you know, it's interesting because, you know, I, there were, it wasn't horrible. It wasn't embarrassing. Like I was, there was a Brettley simulator. In it, like you literally see this video of Brettley bowling to you and a ball machine spits out the ball um, at 145. And I was facing that. Um, but, yeah, it, it wasn't short or anything. You, you kind of knew where the ball was going to be. Um, so, I, I mean, I didn't completely humiliate myself, but I just didn't have the skill level not to get a top edge and hit it and go and hit it straight into my f- own face. So best to get the bat out of the way. I think that was the, that was the main point. I'm just, I just, I guess when I was reading that, I was just fascinated that this was like the culmination of the entire documentary, <laughs> that this had to happen because, mm. I mean, like I haven't seen the documentary. So, but to me, I sort of feel like if you took that element out, like the host having to face Brett Lee, like does the documentary suffer greatly from not having that one jackass style stunt at the uh, end? Um, I mean, it becomes a typical ABC documentary then because, oh, right. that's interesting that Lawa did this and Bodyline was such a big political storm and all these people were hurt and blah, blah, blah. Uh, it really gave an, an emotional punch to the to the. Uh, to the story and um and you know I, I like I mean we're talking about it because of the book but I, I tend to talk about it every few weeks <laughs> in my life to someone <laughs> oh you, you, you face Brett Lee you face Brett Lee did you <laughs> and um and it's like uh, and then of course the Pierce Morgan um uh facing Brett oh, Lee yeah. thing happened a few months after that and Morgan um Gave him shit. Fast bowlers aren't, uh, you know, we talk about emotional, like, yeah, you know, we'd say I, I could, you know, maybe I could have been a bowler because I'm an emotional person and everything, but of course I'm not, I'm not um, built like a bowler at all. But uh, you don't, they're like, um, they're like, they're like gang leaders. You don't want to piss them off. They, they are, they're killers, you know, they're, they're sanctioned killers in a way. And, you know, um, like Tomo, Jeff Thompson, who was bowling, who was recorded to bowl 99 miles an hour, was the fastest bowler ever. But, um, well, you know, there's Brett Lee and Shah Bakhtar have been recorded to be faster than him. But Tomo was only recorded, there was only one speedometer that he actually, they actually recorded his pace and that was in the net. So um, I uh, I think Tomo was probably way faster than all of them. And he just wanted, he, he, he wanted to hit batsmen more than he wanted to get them out. Um, and right. so, you know, that, that, that little period and you're in your teens, your twenties and your early thirties, um, a lot of testosterone going through the blood. You're not an empathetic person. You're a bit fucking mental. Um, and mm. so Pierce Morgan then goes to Brett Lee, starts trash talking Brett Lee and then, you know, ends up breaking two ribs and puncturing a lung. Um, <laughs> I didn't do any of that. I was, uh, <laughs> I was very nice to him. Okay, what kind of contract would have Brett Lee have signed before that to give him total like indemnity from any injury cause? He must have that must have been yeah. cleared like way, way, way up front. I mean, this, I'll have to ask him. I'll I mean, have he, to ask him. Yeah, I did see a jackass stunt once where um, they would just sort of. Uh, I think it was Johnny Knoxville or maybe Steve O, one of those guys. Uh, would throw off a dressing gown and be wearing boxing gear and they'd be in like a department store or just the middle of like, you know, a food court. And then this heavyweight boxer, Butterbean, would come out and just like smack him in the head. And I remember watching that and, and he wasn't like pulling his punches. Like I think at one stage Johnny Knoxville got knocked out and I'm like, what kind of clearance do you get yeah. for this stunt? Like when you know that people die in the ring, people yeah. die from punches all the time. Can, we know what, what we know about concussion these days. Yeah. I guess like they have a different set of like insurers or, or something like that for a show like that. 
Well, I reckon it would have been different. Yeah, you did right with. I mean, I don't know with the whole thing with Jackass what what it would have been, but um, but I think they got away with this pretty cheaply because it was just before, as I said, you know, it's like before concussion became a real thing, you know, um, mm. and it's before Phil Hughes, so it was. It I I think that um. Look, yeah, maybe maybe right. I mean, and what would have Pierce Morgan was helmeted up, and he had he had a helmet, and he had all the padding in the world, whereas I didn't. So I think Brett Lee was pretty careful with me. I've got to say, you know, the balls, it, it would come for me. It was like millimetre perfect every time. It kind of swished past my nose, you know. Um, oh, my God. And, and that it, sound it, too. Yeah. That, that sound too of the same. Zzz, yeah, like yeah. a little chainsaw flying past oh, your face. Mate. It's just, it's otherworldly. And, and so I think that um, – and at the end, I said, "Oh well," I said, "Thanks for looking after me, Brad." And he goes, "I'm, a, I'm." A, I said, "Thanks for looking after me, Brad." And he goes, "I'm a professional." And I went, right, right. <laughs> but I've seen you. I've been seen you be unprofessional before, Brad. I've seen you hit people. <laughs> There's another chapter um, that uh, uh, that really caught my imagination was where you talked about Dane Jones. Because yeah. I remember um, when Dean Jones was brought into Australia A. Yeah, Victorian. Obviously, there's a bias there. But can you take me more into that drama? Because my memory is hazy around that. So Dean Jones was dropped from the test team but was still playing one days. But then was he dropped from the one day sides as well and was just playing like Sheffield Shield cricket? Is that what happened? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the subtlety of it is he, he, he got dropped after from the test team, even though he was just playing very good cricket. I mean, he was, I think, you know, I'd have to look at the book, but I think that the test before he may have, the scores before, the immediate scores leading up to it, there were centuries there. Um, and there's no, I think Tim Lane said, there's no precedent for anyone getting dropped with figures like that. Um, but the selectors right. at the time wanted, there was an exceptionally talented young cricketer from Western Australia um, called Damien Martin, and the selectors just had a hard on for him, and right. so they just got rid of Dean Jones. And you know, so and the only people who, who really were up in arms about it were, were Victorians. You know, um, it was a and, scandal at my high school. Like it yeah, was just yeah. all people could could talk about. And I remember, I can't remember what game it was. If, if, if I think it was a one day where he came back at the MCG and got like. The hero's welcome when he came out to bat. Yeah, it was just yeah, like, yeah. You, you know, I remember that too. Yeah, so so then they were in um, South Africa, and it was the um, they're in a, a tight spot. They needed to win the next game to actually kind of equal the series or something. And um, he was dropped. Uh, he was dropped for that game, and he said to Mark Taylor and. Uh, I don't know who the vice captain was at that stage, but he said, I'm better than both of you at, at, at one day cricket, you know, fuck you both. Um, and he, he left, he said, I'm, I'm quitting. I'm, res- I'm retiring from all forms of international cricket. And then he went back to playing shield and he started scoring triple centuries. And so when the Australian A concert rolled around that, you know, that summer, um, he said, Oh look! I'll, I'll put up my hand, and I'll, I'll ca- you know, I'll put up my hand to captain the Australian A team because you know they'll need some experience and everything, and and that's what that w- Australia was pretty kind of unanimous. The Australian public was unanimous that he should be the captain, and uh, the selectors said, "No, we're going to go for an eye. We've got an eye to the future. We're going again. We're going to make Damien Martin captain." Um, <laughs> and so uh, they did that, and so Jones was, and and so I remember even Greg Chappell, who was the coach in the and the um and the select one of the selectors of the Australian team said, you know, that we're just not we're, we've got an eye to the future. You know, Jones is too old, but Merv Hughes was selected in the Australian A team, and he's exactly the same age as, as uh, Dean Jones. So yeah, it was just as they. All I can say is that Australian cricket is very conservative. But by the way, I'm sure there's some other stories I don't know about it. I, this is all the research. I didn't. I didn't want to get into the, the. I'm sure there's an amazing book somewhere about who said what to whom. I don't know, right? But if you think about Australian cricket, it is very conservative. This is a guy, the first guy to wear sunglasses. Um, 
he would wear zinc cream on his lips. He would do. He would do kind of. He would do kind of things that are always cocky and kind of in your face. And I just think that some. I just think he kind of the establishment didn't didn't like the cut cut of his jib. So the selectors they they can on a whim just change the makeup of the team. Like how how is that process of selecting the Australian side done? Like what are how many people are choosing? What input does the captain have? Like how are the team selections done? Oh, it's so it's so complex. So so generally it's, it's the selection panel is three is uh, is three. Sometimes the coaches in the panel and sometimes the captains in the in the panel. The captain is not in the panel at the moment. Uh that goes in that goes in and out of fashion, the idea of having the captain right. on the panel. Um, uh, and, you know, it, often you've got a, um, one selector is on the ground in a, on a tour, um, one of those three in the, in, the, uh, in the panel. So, yeah, it's a very um, – yeah, I mean, it, you, you're right. It, it, it's – sorry, I, this is what I think you're, you're getting at. It's a little bit arbitrary. Um, and I was just it thinking to, that way. Yeah, I was just thinking today. You know, so many, so many um, uh, footballers have their. I mean, like there's a there's a a guy who plays for Carlton who's who was you know just totally out of favour last year with David Teague, and this year he's playing every week. And you go, wow, mm. he was actually demoted onto the rookie list, and he's like Fisher or Kennedy. Oh a Lockie O'Brien. Um oh, right. his name's Lockie O'Brien. Um so basically he was drafted the same year as Paddy Dow. They both went went to Geelong Grammar and Paddy Dow was the you know, was seen as the, the fair haired boy and he was like and now he's playing reserves and, and Lockie O'Brien's you know, in the first again and you're kind of going, Wow, they hated him so much last year that they nearly got rid of him and then they thought, Oh well reluctantly we'll put you on the rookie list because you're a good bloke. And now he's like mm. Foster's come in. He's front and said it. Now, it's like if it weren't for Voss, that guy's career is over. You know, so yeah. it's the same with Jones. It's it's like, yeah, you do. You're, you're you're dead right. You do have these kingmakers who just like sit sit there and and you just hope that they've you hope that they're discerning and they've got the best interests of everyone at heart and and they're doing and they're making decisions for the right reasons. I mean, another victor. I, I do think the Victorians are harshly treated. I mean, Glenn Maxwell, come on. I mean. That guy should be playing red ball cricket. He should be playing every form of the game. He's definitely one of the most talented players of the last decade or two. And he just kind of, I don't know, again, is he too flashy for them? Is he just not, you know, mm. it, it's, 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 you know, is he too much of a punk? You know, is that it? Because Jones was a punk. Warney was a punk, yeah. but he was undeniable. So, you know. I met Dean Jones when I was 10 years old um, before a test match. He was warming up. I was at the MCG with my autograph book. I went down to the players' race and waited at the gate, and he was so lovely. Like, I remember that was one of my first interactions with, like, a famous person, you know, someone that I'd seen on TV. But he literally took the time. He hung out with me for, like, on the fence. I think he was just throwing a ball back and forth to someone. But he just hung out on the fence and just chatted to me, but seemed like – genuinely interested in oh, what I had to mate, say. That's awesome. Ask me what ask me what football team I went for, ask me if I had a nickname. And I said I I said I didn't. And he said, What's your name? I said Charlie. He said, Well I call you Chuck. Yeah, and then yeah. I said, Do you have a nickname? <laughs> and he said, Yeah I do. See if you can guess it. And I said, is it Dino? And he said, yeah right. I mean it was just one of those because I, I remember as like when I became a teenager and there's all that discussion around his ego. And I remember thinking, geez, I, I didn't have that experience. I mean, look, I'm not saying my 10-year-old memory of Dean Jones is the definitive one about him, but uh, clearly a, a, a complex individual. Uh, well, is that cockiness that, that pisses people off, mate? I mean, what's that What's that guy who's dyed his hair white in place of calling him? Uh, Jack Ginevan. Yeah. Jack so, Ginevan. I mean, yeah. <laughs> you just a lot of guys are affronted by that kind of that punky it's, kind of It's commitment. a very – it's a very Australian thing and like people always bring up Mark Taylor as being the kind of prototypical, not just athlete, but the kind of personality Australians respond to. We like our leaders humble, self-effacing and yeah. not too flashy. 
yeah. which I think is a huge detriment in so in, in not just sport but in politics and yeah. everything. Like Australians always bet on the most average middle of the road investment that they can in the way we fund movies and the in, you know yeah. in, the, in the way we 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 select leaders. It's always like well. If that person's flashy, they can't also have substance. And it's like, look, there's a lot of things wrong with American culture, but the one thing you can't argue is they do celebrate heroes really well. And accept, yeah. the idea of exceptionalism and and being proud of exceptionalism, and it's something to be celebrated as opposed to be ashamed of. I couldn't agree more. Yeah, I mean, the, the whole notion that that Tom Gleason's Gold Logie campaign was all, a, you know, was all based on a joke. Um, that says everything about Australia. Imagine the the greatest award you could get in American TV. But imagine, imagine that just being a like a, a, a like do, that person being selected on the basis of comedy, or, or like a joke. Hmm. Um, that, I think that says everything about Australia. You know, th- this notion that we can't get that you can't be up yourself or, or anything. And I, I think that really manifests in the Australian cricket team. I think it is a real microcosm <laughs> of Australian culture. And people like Dean Jones and Glenn Maxwell are kind of, you know, are, pushed, are, are given a harder time because they've got a bit of strut. Um, yeah. And, and, I mean, If it weren't for Warney, I think Warney did open a few doors. I think like Adam Zampa, another Victorian, um, he's he's got a little bit of strut about him, and um, I I and it doesn't seem to be hurting him. So maybe things are changing a little. Yeah, it's weird. I remember working with an American um, script consultant on a, a script that was in development, and he asked me once. He said, "You know, he's gone. I work with a lot of Australian writers, and he's gone." How come all your stories are so depressing and sad? Like, how come they always end with the person not getting the girl, or everyone ends up dead, or you know? And I said, I, I said, I, I don't know. I think, I mean, there's the tall poppy thing, of course, but I said, I think there is just a general. Maybe it's because we were at one time a penal colony. You know, we live on stolen land. Mm. We were a penal colony, and so there is just a genuine kind of cynicism or, or suspicion around um happy endings that we don't think that, yeah that we don't think that they happen um we deserve that we, them, but he's gone but, but, he's, but he's gone but as an audience he's gone i look at what you guys go to the movies and you all go see a spielberg movie you guys see american shows you like that's, you like consuming that entertainment but when you try and tell those stories you feel like you have to be and i said yeah well, i think we believe we're being more authentic and that's and that's the number one trait that australians that's you know, true we we we're proud of more than anything is well we're authentic we're real but are we is it not more kind of cynical that we're projecting you know this this air of authenticity when really we just want to watch disney movies too well um we're happy to see an american um have a happy ending but we're not allowed to we're not allowed to see our own people have a happy ending no one in an australian accent can have a happy ending. No. We don't want them to get tickets on themselves. Um, Gallipoli, mate. But yeah, it's all Gallipoli. Yeah, that's 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 right. It's like you make an Australian before, um, you know, back back in the days, you know, four years ago when it was everything was very male oriented. Uh, the idea, every Australian sitcom that was successful, you had to have a battling guy who was unlucky in work, unlucky in love, and yet. And he's trying to kind of, he's trying to make good, but he never could. And that's our, that's our sitcom, you know. Yeah. Um, you couldn't have anyone who was a high status character. You couldn't have Frasier made in mm. Australia. You know, that it's like, <laughs> uh, you know, you even Seinfeld, it's like Jerry, that, that, that character's not, you're not going to build a character around the guy who thinks that well of himself. Yeah. But there are, but there are definitely like entertainers and comedians and personalities who come from, you know, that private school uh, uh, mm. background, and, and yeah, and so we accept them when they're being themselves. But what we won't accept fictionalized versions yeah. of that story is that look, the- you know, th- th- there's only a few allowed. Like I, I think that right. um, you know, it's it's one of those things. that's like I remember reading an article. Uh, that Clive James wrote saying America only will only allow one bald 
uh, actor, <laughs> one bald movie star per generation. So I love this idea. <laughs> we we will allow certain people. I think you're allowed to have two or three male comedians who are a little bit up themselves. Right. But then the rest have to be knockabout. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, not that not that Will's up himself, but there's only Will's allowed to carry himself like that. Um, Tom Gleason's allowed to carry himself like that. McAuliffe. Uh, McAuliffe, yeah. Um, but he's a little bit weird, so that's that's a different kind of kettle of fish. But you know, right. you know, weird in inverted commas. Um, but yeah. the rest have to be Lemo and Mick and Pete, you know, and all the days. Yeah, it's funny. I, I saw a criticism of um, uh, the Auntie Donna boys on like online, where someone had uh, put a call out saying, "Hey, um, I just watched that new. Uh, everyone's raving about this uh, comedy troupe Auntie Donna's, but I watched their new show and I, I didn't." I didn't really like it. Like, am I the only one? And this one person's criticism was like, oh, they're just theatre kids with a budget. And oh, I'm like, well, isn't that every TV show? Fucking, <laughs> <laughs> of course they're theatre kids with a budget. Yeah, they're doing theatrics and someone's giving them money to make a show. That's fucking television, you idiot. It, yeah, look, it's – it's uh, don't uh, – yeah, that, I mean, I often think, oh, wouldn't it have been amazing if I could have actually had been involved in something where – the, where the result is, uh, uh, where it's not subjective, you know, it's objective. Where, like, mm. you know, like a running race. Okay, there's no, we can have no argument about who won or <laughs> who lost, you know. Whereas yeah. y- the arguments will go into the night about what's funny and what's not, and um, oh, yeah. and you, you like it's, uh, it's really in in a way did just the amount of shit you 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 cop along the way it is a little bit disheartening and you just go well mm. um maybe i should just go and make drama it's just like yeah. <laughs> it's just because <laughs> you can't argue like if someone gets killed in in a in a situation i mean that's objectively dra- dramatic whereas if someone does mm. a joke so 100 percent of people go yes that's the dramatic thing that just happened whereas if you do a joke you do something funny well 40 percent of people will think it's funny and 60 percent probably won't mm. it's also like um uh when you sometimes there'll be like criticism of uh you know like a comedian or, or an entertainer online and there'll often be that person who comes in and goes uh like who you know or i've never heard of them or whatever uh, and the more famous that person is the more that criticism reflects more poorly on you <laughs> Then it's not making the point you think it makes. Yeah, it's yeah. Like, you know, someone will they'll attack Joe Rogan. Oh, like who never heard of him? It's like, oh, so you've never heard of the most famous podcaster yeah. going around? Look, whether or not you like him, the fact that you don't know about this incredibly famous person suggests that maybe you need to do more research. That is what not we, a valid criticism. What we should do, Charlie, is write a, an, an advice book for trolls. It's like, oh, yeah. edu- <laughs> you know, it's like okay, so when you how to criticize. Yeah, <laughs> how, to, how to troll people correctly. When you say who, it doesn't send the message you think it does. Uh, yeah. You know, it, it or, or, or meh, you know. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> all of those things, you know, it just looks, it, it's just what what they call in music, a common chord progression, you know. It's, uh, yeah. means you're not very bright. Yeah, and I guess in, in the era of social media as well, like, people sort of feel like, you know, they can, someone will promote their new show or the new special or whatever. And they're like, well, I'm just going to slide into the comments and let everyone know my, my feelings. And it's like, there's plenty of shit that I don't like. Plenty of people who I think are undeserved mm-hmm. of their success. I've never once been prompted to go into their comments. And let them know. <laughs> what I think it's just a weird phenomenon. I think we talked about this last time we are on the show, but I just sort of find that whole, you know, you know, we've experienced a little bit with our show moving to listener where we had all these people, uh, yeah. two guys, one cup uh, moving to listener, um, you know, who were uh, upset with the decision, you know, even though we were moving our free show to a free platform, you had to sign up for it. Admittedly, there's going to be five minutes of your time, you know, submitting your details, but you know, that was the only way we could keep the show going was to actually make it financially yeah. viable. And I don't mind that people, wanted to not listen anymore that that that's fine 
why tell me that you don't want to listen? <laughs> like, oh, no. like, what do you expect me to do? Do you, A, do you think that that's going to make us rethink? Like, imagine if I just like call Will and Sam, our producer, and say, guys, look, uh, it's uh, Camaro 467 is really upset. Uh, so I think we need, to, <laughs> <laughs> we need to tear up this contract. Like, I understand you don't want to listen. Just don't listen. Just don't, just, just don't, don't listen but, and don't tell me. Like, I yeah. don't need to know that you are walking out the door. There's plenty of stuff that I have gone off. I've been disappointed with a new season of a TV show. I don't go on to say to the producers, you've let me down. I will not be watching it anymore. <laughs> oh, yeah, mate. I, look, I, <coughs> I'm trying to think. I mean, I think I've been an okay uh, social media citizen over the years. Um, I did get into a spat with uh, – What's that guy? What was that? Um, Malcolm One Roberts. Malcolm I, saw, Roberts. I saw you. Yeah. I saw you. Yeah, yeah Malcolm Roberts. I Malcolm saw that. Roberts. Uh, <laughs> but that, that's about, that's about it. Look, you know, generally speaking, if I'm really upset when someone's had a crack at me, then um, uh, my fake account will have a crack at them. Oh, you've got a burner account. I've got a burner. Yeah. Does your burner account follow me? I wonder if I could guess it. Would no, it no, no. Oh, she doesn't. It's just for trolling. <laughs> oh. oh. Brilliant. She, she doesn't. Uh, no, she doesn't follow uh, very many people. I think it's just like one of those kind of like just um, a number of people just to just throw everyone off the scent. But um, right. you know, she she says some mean things. You know, in, in response, <laughs> she's a good defender. No, look, it's it's she it's she. I wheel her out three times a year, probably, and it's it's just when because you know that there are times if you look on and you're feeling a little low. Um, and as I've described to you before, I'm a bit of an emotional person, even though I'm, I'm I think I'm, I'm much more solid than I used to be. Um, mm. I, if, if one gets through to the keeper, <laughs> if yeah. one beats the bat, I, uh, that's yeah. when she comes out as opposed to Adam comes out, come out and as opposed to Adam coming out and, and defending himself because it just looks shit when you defend yourself. So yeah, it's best it's, to let it's other like people it, defend them, but defend you. I think. There's been a couple of times where I've been tempted to bite back, but then I'm always like, I play it out in my head, like what's the best possible outcome? And even yeah. if I, even if I like war game it to the best possible outcome for me, it's still pretty pathetic. Like, <laughs> That's like, right, you war game it. No- yeah, yeah. Hey, the, can I? There's one bit of advice I would give in our little kind of uh, our, our social media advice book, and yeah. that is, he or he, she or they who leaves first wins. So if you leave the the conversation first, you've won, because the person who does has the last word will always be going, "Hmm, was that did was that dumb or was that uh, shit or did I just say something that made my you know that that made me kind of made the argument kind of dissolve into nothingness? Um, it's it's kind of I think if you, you just got to if you could put it put the uh, put the computer screen down and just walk away uh, and let them have the last word, I think that's a victory. Ah. It's a victory for everyone. It's a victory for your family too, by the <laughs> yeah, way. it sounds like it. Uh, well, you know what is a, is a, is a, is a, a victory and a triumph is your book, 12 Summers. Uh, you can find a link to it in Thank the you, episode mate. description below. Uh, not just a, a book about Australian cricket, an absolutely uh, beautiful and heartwarming memoir and hilarious memoir of the career of Adam Zouar. Um, I just loved it. I thought it was so funny. Your story about Billy Idol chucking your tape player out the window. <laughs> I had to read aloud to Gemma. I think I actually woke her up to read oh, it. Oh, that's that good. Because she had a, a little, she had a little dalliance. Uh, uh, Billy Idol tried to pick her up on an aeroplane <laughs> once. And so I had to. Of course you did. And so I had to elbow and say, hey, your boyfriend threw out Adam Zouar's tape recorder out a window. <laughs> Uh, but it's a brilliant book, mate. Con- oh, it's- congratulations. Thanks, it's, mate. It's just, it's excellent. I can't recommend it highly enough. Um, yeah, he, that, so that was the Como Hotel. He threw the, <laughs> threw the tape recorder out the window from anyone from Melbourne. Um, uh, yeah, and uh, it was, uh, yeah, kind of very unexpected. And only a day before he, he did throw water over Tom Gleeson on the panel. So, <laughs> you know, I was in good company. Uh, Adam, is there anything else you want to plug while you've got the mic? Uh, no, I check out out of the question. Oh, yes. uh, it's my podcast. Charlie Clawson is on this week. Uh, well, last week, whenever this goes out. Um, and uh, yeah, you're you great, mate, because you talked all about you know the the highs and lows of acting and the amount of people that 
you know, if you're going to live a creative life and if you're going to live a sporting life, I might add, you are just going to be facing a whole lot of people who say you shouldn't be there. And, um, and it's important to keep the faith. Well, all this talk if you about love what you do. All this talk about the Australian selectors and the, you know, the way they've impinged the career of like you know, Glenn Maxwell. You're making me think I should never have listened to mm. Hank. Maybe I am a natural athlete. Maybe I let that one criticism like derail my AFL aspirations. Yeah, yeah. I, I, um, <laughs> look. I there's a whole lot of creative stuff that you've done, and you've 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 uh, filled. Uh, you've got a great place in the hearts and minds of you know of. <laughs> Of viewers and listeners alike, mate. So I, 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 I wouldn't know what to say. I mean, you, look, I, you know, look, uh, Hank is a, a, a good friend of ours, uh, listener. Um, yeah, who, we say this um, with love. I, uh, he's, he, he's, uh, he's, he's Amer- but he's one of those guys who will just tell you what he thinks. Mm. Um, he's American, and uh, that, can, yeah, he's New York kind of tough dude. He just says what he thinks, and uh, and he, that what he thinks could change. Dramatically, so <laughs> and that's a great lesson to go out on. I'm I'm Charlie Clawson, and I'm Adam Zwa. Thank you. 